0: You are listening to the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. This week, Nick and I continue our conversation from our episode 300 celebration, starting with my reveal of my talk topic for Paris RB. I did want to share uh, what the talk topic is about. So the talk is called, I have altered the deal. And then in parentheses, pray that I do not alter it further which Star Wars fans will probably pick up on the, uh, the title. Ironically, I have never watched Star Wars. I just thought it was a really good talk title. Um, but the synopsis of it is, imagine your legacy production Rails application is highly dependent on a third party API until you learn from your vendor that they're gonna deprecate your current connection. What do you do when you're forced to make a change? Accept the challenge by embracing abstractions, switching libraries, feature flags, edge case testing, while developing new features. Game on. So this is something that I live and breathe on the daily, as our main API at work is shifting from a SOAP to a REST one. And I really do believe that the best conference talks come from personal experience.
1: Wow, that is... Something that, because I don't know yet if I'm going to be able to make Paris RB, but that sounds so interesting. And it's something that I think a lot of uh, developers are going to understand, right? Because the number of apps that have some sort of reliance on a third party API is probably most of them. And gosh, that, you know, your application's probably quite mature at this point, uh, going from soap to rest, I can only imagine. So you're going to have so much material and that's going to be really fun to hear about.
0: Yeah, we actually recently had an incident at work. So we have this one day in the year, it's called Light Up Night, where we discount a lot of our tickets. And so something that we did, and we are very unlikely to ever do this again, is we made a lot of soap to rest changes, had them all prepped. And we deployed them the day out before this sale. We, of course, did not want to deploy on the sale itself, but we deployed the day before just because we were headed to AWS reInvent the next week, which meant that we weren't going to deploy while we were away and then rolling right into the holidays. And so we deployed this change out. And the next day, you know, users coming onto the site started applying their promo codes and um, buying tickets. And it was going okay for a while. And then all of a sudden our stack just started hemorrhaging. The memory just went up on all of our servers, went really high on our third-party API that we host internally. And as it turns out, the API call in order to get someone's order details uh, was 10 times slower on the REST API that we had just implemented. And because of that, we ended up seeing downtime, which was really heartbreaking because for us, downtime means ticket sales. And so it really caused us to sit down, have a meeting internally and to discuss like how we are going to manage these SOAP to REST changes just because they're inevitable. Our vendor is going to take the SOAP API away, but it's disappointing because the SOAP API in many respects was way more performant than the REST API that we're moving to.
1: Which came first, the, the change in the API and the talk idea or the talk idea and then the change in API came in?
0: Oh, good question. Uh, I have been working on this Soap to Rest change, no lie, over four years. They announced, yeah, they announced the change. Whenever I got the job at the trust, they're just like, hey, just so you know, you're going to be upgrading this Ruby on Rails application from version 2 to 4, which is already scary in its own right. But just so you know, our the site is completely reliant on the Soap API, but they are going to take the Soap API away. And so just be prepared, you are going to be cutting it over to REST. And so I've known that these has been coming, but it took them another two years until they actually revealed the REST client. And so now I'm kind of dealing with that switch now. The vendor says that the SOAP API will be taken away from us next year. I'm kind of calling them on their bluff. But that being said, I certainly do not want to be caught in a situation where I don't have the information that I need. And so we're about 50% way on the cutover. But one thing that's been really helpful is that we've been kind of cherry picking the API calls that aren't as mission critical. So now I'm starting to get into the ones where it's like, ooh, if this one doesn't work correctly, you're not gonna be able to buy a ticket, which is the heart of our business.
1: And that story from you as well, just you know, having, I've never run into something that where we had to do that big of a change on a third party. But from an architecture perspective, it does make you think like, you know, that API is critical for your work, but you know, it's re- there's so many APIs out there where I might just want to not do something, like say with search or something and say like, well, okay, I'll, I'll have these 25 third-party integrations of which I may really, really need five. But then all the others are like, ah, I'll just hook it up. We'll pay 20 bucks a month and, and, you know, have this thing taken care of. But then hearing your story, you know, if. It kind of makes me think if i'm architecting something in the future and if i could relatively easily do it in-house um, from the beginning without a lot of dev time um, that might make me think twice because it's like well what if this thing you know it could just die as well, well i might sign up to something that just stops being a business or gets acquired or you know uh, changes their api without telling you or, or or downtime so it's definitely a really big important area for us to think about
0: You raise such a good question, because if this was happening to me with an email provider, we're so lucky in our community that we can quickly throw one provider away and pick up a new one pretty painlessly. With this third-party API, this is our CRM. It is the absolute heart of our business, and it's something that people that are not on the website use as well, like our box office and our phone room. And so there really is no choice, other than you know they don't really have any competitors, but there is basically it's just understood that we will indefinitely be using this vendor and so i'm jealous of people that can sit down with their management team and have a thorough discussion about whether or not they're going to make up or break up with their current vendor due to a breaking api change
1: yeah it's it's just it's really interesting like um it's almost like there's the life philosophy of acknowledging that there's things over which you have complete control things over which you have some but not complete control and things over which you have no control and i guess you, this applies in programming where uh your third-party api you you don't have any control over whether it's got 100 percent uptime today or if it's fast or, or if it does what you expect it to do but you do have some control over how you handle you know uh what what, what it gives you or how performant it is and obviously you have c- complete control over um, well, maybe not complete control, but over your uh, character and how you respond to it as a team. Um, but that is, it is letting something go, isn't it? And with you and with so many businesses, I mean, I've had APIs that we, we couldn't operate without them. And that, yeah, there wouldn't be a competitor for some of these really important six-month migration to to switch.
0: Well, one uh, one API that I feel like has been getting a lot of buzz in our community is Stripe because on September 2019, you know, strong customer authentication came into effect in Europe as you well know Nick, and it radically changed the way people buy and sell online and more than 300 million European customers had to confirm their identity for the majority of their online purchases. And so, because of this, Stripe had to make a fundamental change to their API which a lot of developers had to build for. And it was not the easiest change to make. It's a very needed change, but uh, you you would have the option to leave Stripe if you wanted to, if that change was just too much for you to bear or whatever you needed to do.
1: Yeah, and it's and it kind of goes into another uh, realm as well that we, we developers don't really think about laws very much. I mean, we have to with work, but we don't wake up thinking about regulation. But since we're so international with our work, yeah, sure. If the EU passes something like, uh, 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 oh, I just forgot the name of it last year, um, data protection or, or how we ought to be able serving things and people's rights and privacy. If the US or the EU does it, it's really, you know, okay, well, we'll take care of it. But it is getting more and more where you have smaller countries or communities trying to pass regulations that touch our code and how we communicate with users and almost all are well intended. But it is becoming a situation like what would Stripe do if, uh, you know, uh, South Africa, and only South Africa, you know, pass something really, really tricky? Do they just turn it off? If your IPs in South Africa? Um, if there's something that they couldn't comply with, with the market? Uh, and I think that's something that we might be thinking about. Sorry, this is quite a tangent unplanned. But um, uh, that is something I think we'll see more of in the next decade, too.
2: Hi, this is Brian Mariani, founder of Mirror Placement, the Ruby on Rails-focused recruiting firm. I was Brittany's guest on this podcast a few months ago and loved hearing from so many of you following that appearance. So I'm back to say hi because the new year is often a time developers start looking for new change or a fresh start, And uh, that can often be a job change. So if you're open to connecting, I'd be happy to share the inside scoop on how the Rails job market is shaping up for 2020. Spoiler alert, it's looking very strong. And uh, we have a lot of remote roles as well, more than ever, actually. And uh, I'm super excited about our remote roles. So if that fits your lifestyle well, we should definitely chat. And you know what? Even if you're not looking for a job right now or it's not a good time, no worries at all. I'd still love to connect and learn more about you so when the time is right and the right company does cross my desk, we can send it your way in the future. I've always said, you know, recruiting is all about long-term relationships and not pressuring people. So if you'd like to start a new conversation or rekindle an old one, I'd be thrilled to chat. Just shoot me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and we can set something up. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.
1: Um, Yeah, I just have a a couple little ones. So uh, first off, I was talking about that Catalina upgrade and a new Rails app. So I don't know if the listeners are familiar, but one of the big community resources that's been around a bit, but actually growing quite a lot lately, is uh, Dev Community, and that's uh, it started out I think as the Pragmatic or uh, Practical Programmer on Twitter. It became uh, an Instagram, and it's it's got its own website for programmers to post dev.2. So if you've ever seen any dev.2 links, it's from them. And I was interested in, because I thought I liked the layout of their application. I like their ethos. You know, they're processing about 5 million, not, not requests, sorry, uh, 5 million unique users a month. And it's growing, and it's kind of important now if you like to communicate to programmers. So it's having a look, and um, just at the time I was also looking to work a bit more on open source and found out it's a Rails app. So it's a full Rails backend. I think it has some React-style components on the front end. But it's completely community-powered. I think it is a company. I think they do raise money, but it's it's very much of an ethos of community support, positivity, giving everybody a platform. And, uh, and also for their, uh, how it's built, yes, they have employees, But everybody's welcome to come in. So I thought this was a great opportunity to take an app that was probably bigger than anything I worked on because I worked on a lot of SaaS products that were smaller so it'd be very niche but the technical side wouldn't be as wild but to to take something that's getting five million unique users a month and go in and set it up. So I just wanted to first it's kind of a shout out for if you want to practice Working on a completely different app because maybe you've been on the same setup for two, three, four years or six months, or you just want to practice more. I would recommend their application getting it on your machine very well documented to just work on an app that has all these uh, integrations and uh, style, uh, like as a robust API. It uses uh, Algolia for search, which I'd never used, so I got to see that. It does interesting things with Elasticsearch that I haven't seen. Um, just seeing how things are built. And yeah, I've also filed a few PRs and and helped out a few people on issues, so it's good for the community side of things. But um, I'll I'll give you a link for that, but it's a really fun repo if you're a Rails dev to see what a modern, uh, robust, heavily used Rails app looks like.
0: I think that's fantastic. I do not know a lot about Dev.2. I'd actually like to have one of their developers onto the show soon, so expect to see that, listeners. I feel like we, uh, as default, we're using Discourse for all of our benchmarking and the ability to see a very large legacy Ruby on Rails app in the open. And so having another option out there I think is fantastic and definitely if they're doing something interesting with Elasticsearch, I definitely want to see it because I do a lot of Elasticsearch for a living and it would be good for me to see uh, another implementation
1: exactly like I I've used it in very in a very small context I've built endpoints for external applications to use and again a smaller context I can do all these things but I've never had to do it at a large enough scale where a lot of people rely on it so for example seeing how they lay out their API for developers to hook into their back end um, is, is interesting I said, oh that's how you handle errors at that oh yeah I'll definitely use that pattern in the future or um, even just just looking in their controllers and, and their routing uh and, and the gems they use it just gives you a free chance to play and if you struggle guess what it's a lovely open community and you can post issues and get get assistance um and they have a lot of issues marked help wanted and uh good first issue and they are good first issues so if you like things the docker way they have the docker guide i did it docker first which isn't my number one path but then i ended up just doing the native setup so that's why I felt a little pain obviously with the full local setup, but it's running like a breeze. And I'm just just—I'm just really proud that something that is that used by the, so many developers is a Rails app. So it's just kind of fun to be involved.
0: I will never be not proud of that. I get so excited when I hear a company that I have used and I'm, I'm a customer of is a Ruby on Rails application. I don't know if you've ever heard of the mattress company uh, Tuft & Needle. I'm fairly certain that's a large scale Ruby on Rails application, which is just really cool. It just proves to you that Rails is here to stay and it supports real businesses that are generating money and giving jobs to the, the Ruby community.
1: Yeah, it is just a really cool element of it. And and of course, most of the neat ones that we're proud of are gonna be closed source, they have to be, you know, but once in a while we get little treats like this one that it's just, if you wanna, if you're an, uh, Upper junior to upper intermediate, or maybe even lower senior, and you just want to level up. And and by the way, listeners, uh, tweet me if there's other really good ones out there on this scale that are that are on, uh, open in some sort. Because I've I've picked up so much this month, just even a couple hours a week noodling around, running a test, editing some code, seeing how you know Pusher. I've never worked with a Pusher integration, and now I've figured it out, and it's really cool. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's why I've gone that. And then uh, one other thing, I, I think I've briefly talked about it before, but I wanted to kind of underlay or uh, overlay another story on uh, a topic that's close to my heart, which is imposter syndrome in programming. It's something that I've only experienced uh, up till now really in programming. It's not that I feel like I belong everywhere else. It's just such an acute thing for someone who doesn't have a CS degree who's taken on big challenges and jobs and and moved forward to feel this you know have somebody ask make a technical comment to you even years into working in in ruby and feel have that little voice say you're an idiot you don't actually know what you're doing you're just copy pasting your whole life right you're just Mm -hmm. throwing in binding up pry and fixing nil errors um and it's it's something that you know i've probably dealt with better than any time in my life now. And I'm probably the most confident I've ever been. But it's still there. And it's still something that I have to fight, because it can kind of gain ground if you've had a rough week uh, with errors and work. And I inadvertently kind of found a way to practice against my imposter syndrome, not at work. So a few months ago, seven or eight months ago, I joined my little local chess club. I've never been in a chess club, but I knew how to play. And I wanted to go out and use my brain you know just another activity and uh, it's a in a Cornish village it's really tiny so immediately like everybody knows you it's in a pub it's very much picture that English countryside pub Uh, you know older folks mostly a few of my age and after about six seven months playing with them they started having me compete in matches Uh, the way it would work it'd be like four players against four players one or two games each, and whichever side got the most points for that team would win, right? there would be like a league in ranking and wins and losses. And about a week ago, I was playing against a gentleman from the, our nearest club, and I was in the middle of the match, and I, I didn't realize this till after, but I started getting hit with that same part of the brain, the same thoughts. He was really moving fast and really in control, it appeared, if you just looked at the game and not the board. And I started having thoughts like, you're stupid. This fella's been playing 50 more years than you. You're not going to beat him. And then then there'd be other thoughts that were even more sinister. He'd kind of look up from the board and I'd think, oh, am I being rude? Should I have resigned? Am I going to get checkmated in the next move and I can't even see it? Even though I've been playing the best chess I've played in my life, working really, really hard at it, I start having these awful thoughts about, I'm definitely going to lose. And it's like the the biggest imposter syndrome was uh, syndrome one was uh, where I thought I should resign. And I don't see why I should resign because I'm that bad of a player and I'm being rude by still playing. And I ended up with 20 seconds left on my clock checkmating him and winning. Yeah. And and funnily enough, if you do run the moves through, I, I had lost the game, but I just held on, even though he had so much more time left. And it was, yeah, it was such a thrill to win as well. I just, I started moving and it's just, I had this choice with like 10 moves, the last 10 moves where I'm down to like a minute, minute and a half. I don't have time to be insecure anymore. I'm like, all right, I'll make a fool of myself. I don't know this person and just go through. And it was such a rush, but I think even if I lost, just having a completely different activity where I feel like an imposter that isn't my job and being able to just face it and, I lose most of the time because most of these people are really, really good. Um, but just turning up and having that be okay and a fun, positive experience and realizing you're not an imposter and a completely new thing that's not programming, I think you train yourself to handle those types of thoughts. And then when you're at work and those types of thoughts come in, you've already been practicing, a, a, you know, like against that uh, that feeling, it becomes muscle memory. So anyway, I'm not saying everyone should go out and do chess, but I would recommend trying on a completely new activity that you know nothing about that may or may not be competitive. It may not be competitive. And seeing if you get those imposter feelings and seeing how you handle them.
0: I love that. Um, I have an experience pretty similar, uh, but in a different way. So I love working out and I've been taking Les Mills body pump for years. And so about a year ago, I decided that I was going to get certified as an instructor. And so I've been doing that on the side for about a year. And I recently started teaching at a local YMCA, and I've been slowly building up the people who come to my class. Now, if you've never taken a Les Mills Body Pump class, it's basically low weights, high rep, uh, very choreographed, you're learning these algorithms. And so you have to hit the beat, you have to encourage your students, you have to say motivational things, and you have to be lifting heavy weight yourself. So you want to be an aspirational figure. And so you're almost performing in front of these students. And as someone who doesn't have a ton of speaking experience, I'm getting there, um, as someone who is leading these people to do something that I'm so passionate about, I get a lot of imposter syndrome because it starts running through my head. Well, am I doing a good job? It, could these students be doing something else? Could they be doing something in order to better shape their bodies, hit their goals? And just anytime the same students come back to my class, and even better when they bring their friends, it just kind of gives that imposter syndrome like a little bit of a slap, saying like, calm down. Like you can lead, you can be the authority in this classroom, you can be the person that they're looking up to. And I completely agree with you that having those experiences outside of coding kind of lends itself to then me going into a meeting that I might be leading around a technical topic and feeling like I can be the authority on that subject and that I can present in a way that is interesting and aspirational. It's, it, it's definitely a wonderful thing to be able to flex those muscles outside of work.
1: I think there might be some parallels to, um, I remember hearing about, you know, people focus on mental health now with uh, with programming and with everything a lot more than they used to. And I remember hearing, you know, uh, one common technique with mindfulness or uh, CBT would be to say if you had anxiety a lot about something. Um, To list out, say, 10 things that gave you anxiety and go to the least anxious thing and just sit there and be in that situation and focus on it and just let yourself see that you're surviving and go to more and more difficult situations, this might be something very similar. Whereas if you can go to somewhere that's not programming, make yourself get that imposter feeling, see that you're not dead, see that you're not being kicked out, nobody's laughing at you, nobody's giving you a hard time, even if they are, that you're just fine, that everything's okay. Then I, I agree with you. You just, then when you feel that in the, in the important context and work, uh, that you just have that confidence where I've been here, I'm fine, it's okay. And I just, again, um, like you said about supporting people newer in the community and, and, and getting them out there, hopefully, you know, the ones that are listening can take these tools as well. And hopefully, sharing it uh, gives them a chance to uh, give it a go and, and help improve that because, you know, I think it's the biggest threat to getting new and junior developers uh, growing in the community into intermediate intermediate and senior because they're probably facing it. I remember when I was junior, it's really, really strong. So we just, you know, hopefully this will offer some encouragement to folks up.
0: I think that's a perfect note to end the podcast today. Listeners, thank you so much for celebrating episode 300 with Nick and I. Nick, thanks again for joining the show. It's always such a pleasure to hear what you're up to.
1: Thank you very much, my pleasure.